And I'm convinced that the reason why God has allowed this story to continue to be told is because the story is not about baseball. That's just a small piece. The story is about where people live every day in life with the good, the bad, and the ugly. Welcome to the third season of the Good Tidings Podcast, where we highlight and inspire a community of givers with your host, the founder of the Good Tidings Foundation, Larry Harper. On this month's Good Tidings Podcast, I have the pleasure to speak not only with a great former major league pitcher, but even a greater person. So Dave Dravecki, welcome to the Good Tidings Podcast. Uh, thank you very much, Larry. It's great being with you. So we are doing this interview today via Zoom. You are now at your new home down in Mesa, Arizona. How are things in Arizona? Actually, things are going really well. You know, it's been unseasonably cool in Arizona. So we're not pushing the 100-degree barrier. We're at about 98, 99. <laughs> <laughs> Almost need a sweater. Yeah. <laughs> hey, trust me, some put it on. <laughs> Um, actually it's been great being here. Yeah. Yeah. That's where your family is now and your kids and being closer to spring training and all that, I guess. Yeah. Much better. Um, our kids are still in California. They're in Costa Mesa, but we're just a quick shot across the 10, about five hours into them. So it puts us actually closer to them being here than when we were in San Francisco. Yeah, I guess you're right. So I want to start by going back to 1989, certainly an interesting year for both of us. For me, it was quite a rewarding year. I'd spent five years trying to get a coaching job or a scouting job in Major League Baseball. And after 150 letters of rejection, back when people actually mailed letters, Mm. I finally got a job with the Giants being their scout in Southern California. So just a super exciting time. And that was the fall of 88 into 89. I'm thinking, wow, this, look at this team. We're going to go to the World Series in my first year. This is, this is going to be great. But you were in the midst of this comeback after having a tumor removed from your pitching arm in the previous fall of 88. The Giants were on the way to the World Series, like I mentioned. You came back on August 10th of 1989 at Candlestick Park. You win your first game back. Tell us about that day at the stick. It was magical. I think that's the easiest way to describe it, the best way to describe it, because you don't really anticipate all the stuff that's going on around you. All you focus on is the fact that you've been told outside of a miracle, you'll never pitch. And now you're getting ready to stand on the mound. And so that's where my focus was in the clubhouse. It was back to business as usual, very normal. I'm not the guy that puts on his game face before a game. I love things to be as normal as they are the other four days in between starts. So that day was really routine outside of the fact that I was actually coming back when they said outside of a miracle, I'll never pitch. So obviously there's going to be some butterflies in there and and just excitement and anticipation of what could potentially happen. So, you know, I get ready and go through all that and then go out onto the field to warm up and all of a sudden 
I see cameras everywhere. And I mean, I seriously thought to myself, what's going on? What is going on? And I realized, oh my gosh, this is a bigger deal than I thought it was. Here I was just thinking, I'm just coming back to pitch. And I get out on the bullpen, in the bullpen, and I start warming up. And Terry Kennedy is standing down at the other end. He comes down to get me loose. And and he looks at me, and I look at him, and I just grab my chest, and I just went like this because my heart was pounding so fast. And he looked back at me, and he went like that too as well. And so we began to go through that process. And, And I guess to make a long story short, that particular moment was overwhelming for me and kind of put things in perspective. Um, There was something going on that was really big, and it was the opportunity to come back and pitch. But more than that, there were so many other small stories that were really big stories going on around me in relationship to the lives that would be impacted as a result of this comeback. And so, you know, going out there and now getting ready to start the game, all I wanted to do was make sure that I was able to keep the first ball so I made sure I threw a ball on the first pitch. <laughs> and I think we were able to put that aside. They have that somewhere. And I've got to tell you, it was so amazing, Larry, because when I stood back on mound, I was really nervous, not knowing what was going to happen. But after I threw that first pitch, it was like nothing had changed. I was back before the diagnosis. I was pitching and, and I was locked into this game. It was absolutely incredible. You know, the focus came back. The rhythm was good. My pitch count. I mean, get this. I go eight full innings and I throw 93 pitches. Do you think that would happen today? No, no, (laughs) no, they wouldn't, they wouldn't allow that to happen today, but 93 pitches. And by the way, watching these games, guys are in the fifth inning with 93 pitches which is really interesting, but I was a pitch to contact. I wasn't a swing and miss guy. So that made a lot of sense, but just amazing, magical, no real words to describe how amazing that day was. Yeah. And I got to imagine just getting to know Roger Craig as a manager, as a person, he probably was the perfect guy for you to come back and pitch and, and just know what it meant. And the whole moment meant he had to be the perfect manager for that game, I I imagine. Yeah, he sure was. As a matter of fact, I remember going in before the uh, game started and went into his office. And I had never done this before because I always respected who the manager wanted behind the plate, always. But back in December of 1988, when I was able to actually go through my delivery and I looked at Jan and I said, oh my gosh, what if this happens? I said, how cool would it be if Terry Kennedy was behind the plate and TK was actually in Baltimore playing with the Orioles. And in January of 1988, I look at the paper and in the transactions, lo and behold, Terry is traded to the Giants. And I'm, oh my gosh, babe, I just finished telling you a few weeks ago What if TK ended up being a giant? Now he's a giant. It's January. We are only a few months away for the season to start. What if this really happens? So I walked into Hum Baby's office and I said, Hum, 
I've never done this before, but I want Terry Kennedy behind the plate. He did not, Larry, he did not say a word to me. He just put his hand on top of the lineup card, shuffled it over to me on the other side of his desk. And he said, look at the lineup. And I look there and there's Terry Kennedy in the lineup. Only time I've ever done it. He was already thinking with me. He was literally, to your point, this man was literally in step with everything about this day for me. And that speaks volumes to me because he cared deeply about his players. And this was indicative of home baby. I was just so fortunate to have him as my manager um, and make him come back. It was really special. And you guys were you and, and Terry teammates in San Diego also? We were. Oh, okay. I make oh then he just he really knew these situations. Oh, he really yeah. knew it. And what was so uncanny during the course of the game, there were pitches that he did not call. He just set up in a pitch count where the location would be, and he knew exactly what I would be throwing. It was the most amazing experience on the backdoor slider. God, it, he was he was right there making that call on the cutter on the inside part of the plate right there without throwing any numbers down. It was like we had already had that thing that they have going on now with the little buzzer up there in the head when they're yeah. sending messages <laughs> from the catcher or whatever they're telling. I don't know if they're telling yeah. them. to. I don't know if they're actually. Well, it's got to be a beat because they're not speaking. But uh, yeah. You know, so anyway, that was, that was TK. We already began the mental telepathy, of, I think, if that's what it's called. Yeah, uh, just that's a great story. And then, of course, five days later, it's your next turn in the rotation. And I think it's been well talked about in Montreal what happened. Drabecki gives him a look. Here's the pitch to the plate, and it goes all the way to the screen. Drabecki falls down and grabs his left shoulder, and he is hurting. Drabecki is hurt badly. Tell us a little bit about, are you as nervous for your second start or now are you kind of calm? What's happening as you prep for the second start? Yeah, I mean, I was I was relatively calm and surprisingly so coming off of the high of that win. But it was, we were in a pennant race. So I was locked in for game two against, you know, my second game against the Expos. And there was there was nothing out of the ordinary, same routine as always and getting ready to go out and pitch. And I mean, it was, it was absolutely incredible. I mean, again, I'm standing there and I'm thinking, gosh, I, I shouldn't be doing this. And this is such a beautiful gift and I'm just really grateful. So let's go out and have fun and, you know, let's keep this ball game close and keep our club um, in a position to win. I mean, that yeah. same MO. Obviously everybody knows your arm breaks at, during this game. And the talk is in, playing in a dome there that people, everybody could hear the break. Mm -hmm. Is that true? It was that kind of loudness. Oh yeah. I mean, it was amazing when I heard it and it was right next to my left ear when it snapped. I mean, it was so loud that afterwards, Will told me, he said, Dave, the crowd went, it was deafening, silent. And he said, it was like somebody had shot you from the upper deck. It was like a sniper had squeezed the trigger and shot you. He said it was that loud. And I mean, he was the guy. We were just celebrating his wonderful ceremony around uh, retiring his number. And we reminisced about that again and him being the first one to the mound when I was laying there. And, and he, he reminded me that, you know, he was trying to get me to breathe because the pain was so intense that I was about to go into shock. 
And, and then Mark Laton came running out and they were both standing over me and just yelling, breathe, Dave, through the nose, out the mouth, breathe, breathe. And I finally caught my breath. And I mean, it was when I caught my breath and I kind of came back into reality zone. I mean, it was amazing how quiet it was in that stadium. So really cool story around this. 25 years later, Jan and I are getting ready to go on a vacation around 2016. And I'm pretty consistent. If I've got a lot of stuff on my desk to take care of, one of the beautiful things about my career and, and the experiences that I've had is that people still remember me, which is really cool. <laughs> and so I get a lot of baseball cards to sign. Uh -huh. Collectors are asking for autographs and sending them back. So I had a whole bunch of that stuff sitting on my desk. And I love to have my desk clean before we go away. So I'm sitting there signing all this stuff. And all of a sudden, there were a few boxes there. I knew there were baseballs going to be in the box. Just get them out, sign on the sweet spot or wherever I'm told, get it back in the box and send it out. But this one box had a letter in it. And so I thought, that's really rare because normally it's just a really small note that says, please sign my ball. So I pull out the envelope and get the letter out of the envelope and I start reading it. And it's from a, a man by the name of David Kaufman He's the CEO of an investment firm in Montreal, Canada. And he begins to write me about my story and him following it to the point where he saw that my second game after the comeback game would be in Montreal. So he bought a ticket right behind the Expos dugout to come and watch me play. So to this conversation that we're having, when that happened, when my arm broke, he said it was stone cold silent. And he said, but everybody followed you. And for some reason, Dave, I followed the baseball. And it rolled into the dugout. They called dead ball. The bat boy picked it up. And when he came up and stood up, he and I made eye contact and I knew the kid. And he's writing this story to me. And he said, I looked at the kid and I said, give me the ball. So he tossed me the baseball. Oh, no way. And he said, 25 years later, after three or four moves, I came across this ball, marked it back then. And I just wanted you to have it as a gift. And maybe now it's easier to remember. Wow. <laughs> and so, gosh, Larry, I was like, oh, my Lord, that was just, I mean, Jan and I sat there and we were just in tears because it was one of those moments where in everybody's story, there are these intersections that occur, these crossroads. And in those moments, there's something really special that happens. And to be able to have the opportunity to go back and look at August 15th, which by the way, was yesterday, was the anniversary of me breaking my arm to go back and remember that through the baseball that was given to me was priceless. I mean, it, it was almost like it brought full circle. It was like God was saying through this baseball, I'm bringing you a full circle in this story. You know, so it was just really, really cool. Yeah. And I know when you Got on a plane and you came back to San Francisco getting off the plane at the airport. There was quite a reception for you. So this was 
This is a big story. Even back then when the media wasn't like it was now, is now, it was, you had quite the reception, right? Yeah, it was, it was amazing. It really was. It was overwhelming. And gosh, my wife and I both, when we got off the plane, we looked at each other. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is unbelievable. And we were just, we were so grateful because we knew that it was going to be that support that would help us get through. We knew that. And so it was just incredible. Yeah. I have this photo, no one's going to see, but I'm going to hold it up for you to see, but it's in my office. It's a great photo, the beauty of working for the Giants at the time of you throwing out the first pitch after winning the Willie Mack Award as the most inspirational player for the Giants that year. So for you, was winning the Willie Mack Award and the comeback, because you did come back and you pitched twice, was that enough or you thought, I'm ready for the next my thought is the next comeback. When am I coming back next year? Yeah, absolutely. There was no question that that moment in particular, you know, the support of my teammates who were the ones that honored me with that incredible award. And then all that goes with the Willie Mack award around the individual Willie McCovey and how special Willie is to all of us and what he stood for as a man of humility and a man of honesty. And I was just so grateful to be a part of something that obviously was so much bigger than any player that received the award because it represented someone that was outside of the big game of baseball was a giant because of who he was, not what he did. Yeah. And, and that was what was so special and so meaningful. So, you know, when that happened and we were preparing to go into the postseason, you know, I'm thinking the doctor said, if there's no cancer, then the bone's going to heal. And I'm thinking, maybe I can make another <laughs> crazy. Maybe I can make another comeback. And unfortunately, that would be kiboshed when, you know, in the postseason against the Cubs, when we went on to win that, I went out to celebrate in the middle of the pile and got hit from behind. And my left arm breaks a couple inches above the original break. And so at that point, I knew my career had come to an end. And, and eventually that fall after the World Series, they discovered that there was more cancer in my left arm. So that began the next chapter in the story that led to the ultimate amputation of my left arm and shoulder on June 18th of 1991. So that was an amazing moment in my career. That is the highlight, quite frankly. I mean, pitching the comeback game was really special. It's one of the greatest moments in my story. I think, you know, as a baseball player, it's always signing your first contract as a kid coming out of college and getting that minor league contract with the opportunity to be a professional, I mean, a major league baseball player. But I think the most significant moment was actually when I broke my arm. Because as I laid on the ground, Larry, the thing that went through my mind was not why me. I mean, I had already dealt with those issues because the bottom line was nobody even thought I could be there anyway. So I was grateful for the two, two games that I did get because nobody expected any games. What went through my mind in that moment was, God, what are you up to in my story? There's something going on that's bigger than baseball. And I have no idea what it is, but there's something going on here that's so much bigger than baseball. So now I'm moving into that season of life with an amputation and beginning to discover in some ways what that next thing was going to be. Yeah. And people, they see professional baseball players, they assume it's just like basketball or football. You're drafted, you go right into the show. 
you were a 21st round draft pick by the Pirates, which really means there was almost 600 players taken ahead of you. Yeah. At that time, did you think, oh, I'm a big leaguer? I mean, were you always that confident, like, I'm going to be a big leaguer. It's just going to take a little bit longer maybe, but I, I always see myself in the big leagues. Or were you just grateful for a professional opportunity? I was just grateful for a professional opportunity. I didn't see myself in that light at all in relationship to being a Major League Baseball player. I had a dream to be the next Sandy Koufax or Vita Blue. That was my dream as a kid. When I went to Youngstown State University, I went to Youngstown State University, Larry, because I, I ended up being a walk-on. Nobody in the country wanted me to play for them. So I wasn't recruited by any school. So it was my love for the game that allowed me to keep playing, but I never dreamt in a million years I'd play in the big leagues. I had always hoped that maybe someday I might get that chance. But the reality was my confidence level was in the moment at that time. If I can do well at this level, and they moved me to the next level, then my next level is the next challenge. And so I kept my focus very simple and more in the moment than looking down the road towards the big picture. The dream was always there, but the reality of whether or not it became true, time would tell. Yeah. And a fun fact of these great minor league cities, historically, the Pirates had one, believe it or not, in Hawaii, yes. and you got to play in Hawaii. How, how Was that as good as it sounds? Oh, yes. And then some. <laughs> and then some. Because Kevin Mitchell has given me the name nickname Snacks, so you can only imagine where I was at the end of the ball game in front of the spread getting ready to eat. And so when we were in Hawaii, <laughs> some of the best fruit you would ever want to eat was always there on display for all of us. And Doug Rader was our manager. I will never forget him. We called him the fruit moose <laughs> because he was <laughs> he looked he looked like that bird on the Fruit Loops cover of cereal. Oh goodness. <laughs> so we called him the fruit moose. And that guy used to get a pickup nerf basketball games in the clubhouse, seven players against him. And oh now you got to remember, Doug was like 6'4", 250. He was a middle linebacker. And I mean, the guy was just a beast and he was, he was good to us. He didn't, he didn't destroy or hurt any one of us, but he took us all out. <laughs> right. But he's the guy, oh, that's funny. he's the guy though, Larry, that was another manager in my career that would have done anything for his players. Anything. He defended them. He protected them, and um, he gave us everything we would need to be the best version of ourselves. That's cool. And I appreciated that so much about him. Hawaii was awesome. And we gave birth to our first child, my daughter, Tiffany. So you oh, know, wow. becoming a dad and, and then playing in Hawaii was really, really cool. That's great. So moving a little more into present time, you, you are now the community ambassador for the San Francisco Giants. Tell us a little bit about what that entails and some of the stuff you do. First of all, it's a wonderful privilege and honor to be a part of the Giants organization and their family as an ambassador. We get to represent, and there's several of us on the ambassador team, we get to represent the San Francisco Giants in the Bay Area. And I think one of the beautiful things that we get to do is connect with nonprofits that they're connected with throughout the Bay Area to help underserved kids to be engaged in what others are doing and serving a particular sector of um, our community, whatever it might be. And so that has always been 
something that my wife and I have been really close to is realizing we were given so much when we went through our journey of pain and suffering by the support of others that when we got to the other side, we would want to give back. As a baseball player, you're always getting things. It's all about me. We get this, we get that, we get all these things. And now it was an opportunity to say it's time to give back. And, and, and to be honest with you, some of the cool things that I've been a part of, obviously, are what you've been involved in with Good Tidings and being able to um, help the underserved community with baseball fields, refurbishing them, building new ones, and providing these incredible opportunities through the game of baseball for these kids to learn and go through character development, you know, because it's more than just baseball. What do you learn about life as you play the game? What do you learn about sportsmanship? What do you learn about fairness? What do you learn about caring for your teammates? And, and what do you learn about it's us and not me, me, me all the time? You know, there are moments when it's about you because it's you going out there and doing what you've been asked to do and do it well, whether it's on the field of athletics or whether it's in the workplace or whether it's in the classroom. And yet there's also this idea of the collective group working together for a common goal too as well. So I've appreciated so much being a part of that. You know, it's really cool. I'm in my 12th year as an ambassador, Larry. I mean, time has flown by. I mean, I remembered where were we when we opened up that field that you guys did? It was down in the Central Valley. Oh, I'm drawing a blank right now. I was living in Turlock at the time. Yeah, I was in Stockton. Yeah. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, just really yeah. cool stuff. As you look back, is it your faith that drives you or calls you to spend your time helping others? Or were you always that way? Even going back as a young person, were you always kind of the one that was helping others? No, it really is my faith. I was a very selfish young boy. Hmm. I mean, growing up, life was all about Dave. When I went into baseball and, and I actually signed to play professional baseball, when I got traded from Pittsburgh over to the San Diego Padres in 1981, that's where Jan and my faith journey began. That's where we had become Christians. Teammate of mine challenged me to read the Bible to discover who I was in relationship to God. And I was overwhelmed what I came face to face with. And this had nothing to do with the institution of the church, had nothing to do with any denomination. It was purely about discovering my relationship with him. And as we embarked on that journey over the years, God has been transforming my heart into a selfless heart instead of a selfish heart. And so being engaged in these things is, is the byproduct of my faith. It's what drives Jan and I. We come alongside people who hurt today through our own ministry called Endurance with Jan and Dave Dravecki. And we offer encouragement and comfort and hope to people who are suffering with cancer, amputation, or depression. And there are other people, you know, there, I mean, we've, we've worked with people who have had other serious physical afflictions. But yeah, that's what drives us today. It, it And it all stems from our relationship with God and, and uh, the opportunity to give back to people. Yeah, that's wonderful. And we hear the words motivational speaking often performed by famous people or inspirational people. And you've spoken in a, a number of events for us. Your approach is so different. Tell us about that a little bit. I've often thought about uh, this whole idea of speaking. And, and when I think about how it all began, it actually started with me never wanting to do it again after I did it. <laughs> <laughs> so that tells you a little bit about 
sure. where it was. But what I discovered, and this is something that is really, really interesting because it wasn't me that actually developed this way in which I, I speak. It was actually the encouragement of my wife to just go out there and share your heart. You can prepare in your mind and in your heart how you want to share your story. But when you tell that story, you always tell that story from your heart. And so when you go to certain places, like we were just in Lodi, California, I had an opportunity to speak at a church there, a Lutheran church, St. Pete's in Lodi. And what was so beautiful about it was that I ended up meeting so many people while I was there before I spoke. And what ended up happening, Larry, was incorporated them into my story because I was there for them. I wasn't there for me. It was for them. And so what I was able to do is take this story from my heart and bring people that were there that could connect with that story into my story. And I guess that's been the beauty of, of being able to share my story wherever I go. And, and I've chosen not to use notes. I've chosen simply to stand in front of people and share my heart and, and be mindful of the people that I am actually there with who can give me what I need oftentimes when I do share my story, which is themselves and their own stories. That's been really cool. So when I go, I always engage. I always engage with people. I want to know who you are. I want to hear what you're doing. I want to know why good tidings exist. I want to know what's going on in people's worlds because as I do that, I end up connecting with them in a very real way through telling my story. And that's been really important to me as I've traveled the country sharing my story. I have to be honest with you, Jan, we look at each other and go, we can't believe we're still doing this. <laughs> I mean, we had a three to five year, here's, here's to planning. We had a three to five year plan that this would probably end. And then I'd have to get on with my life and find a real job. 31 plus years later, we are still telling this story. And I'm convinced that the reason why God has allowed this story to continue to be told is because the story is not about baseball. That's just a small piece. The story is about where people live every day in life with the good, the bad, and the ugly. I've heard you speak during COVID. What was interesting for me about COVID is it was a good thing that the social unrest happened during COVID because it people had the time to voice opinions and talk about what we need to do. And, and what I love about your speaking is really is, whether it's religious-based or not, it's about common sense on how you treat people and how you want to respect people and how you... And I love that approach when you speak because it just makes sense to everybody, whether you're religious or not, or you're on one side of the spectrum of, of politics or not. It's a common ground, and I love that about the way you speak. Yeah, I appreciate that, Larry. I think the thing that is has been hard through the two years plus that we have struggled um, as a nation and as a world, as communities, and I mean, it's no secret. I mean, so many, so many of us have become extremely divisive. And in the life that I've lived, 
through the most difficult of times, it has really been about people who have given me the strength and the courage to move through the storm to get to the other side. And that is wrapped around a word that is very important to me, unity, coming together on common ground and being able to move forward together. And I think that is so important in our culture. We've lost the ability to be able to communicate our thoughts and at times be able to agree with each other, but even in the disagreeing with each other, to be okay to disagree. We don't have to always land on the same page, but what we must be mindful of every time we engage with people is to be respectful of one another and be unified, come together and be unified. And, and so much of my life and so much of our work is about stepping into other people's stories. And we're given the privilege of stepping in. That's sacred ground, Larry. That is sacred ground. When somebody allows you to step into their story with them, that is sacred ground and it must be respected. And so for, for Jan and I, it's stepping in and doing the only thing we know how to do, regardless of what the situation is. And that one thing that we have learned and are learning to do is love people well. Yeah. Simply love them well. And I will tell you, the other thing that has been really powerful, really powerful in our story, because I'm not naive enough to think that I haven't messed up and done some stupid stuff over the course of my life. And the thing that has driven me towards love is forgiveness. And that has been a powerful word in my life and in others as we journey together, because in forgiveness, love is pulled out and it can be expressed to each other in the process. And, and you know, when you show people that love, sometimes it helps to break down those barriers that might exist by simply loving people well. Yeah, that's so well said. And you often reference unlocking the significance of team in life. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, because I think the reality of, of my journey has absolutely nothing to do with success. The reality of my journey has everything to do with living a life of significance. So what begs then the picture of what significance looks like. Well, what does success do? It helps me to be successful. Okay. As I pursue success, it helps me to be successful. Now there is something else in that equation. If I'm successful and I'm working with a lot of people, I can draw them into that success, but how do I draw them into that success? And here's where the significant piece is as I lead do I serve or do I wield my power over people? And as I serve people, I create an environment of significance. And the reason why is because I'm saying to that person, you are more important to me than even me. You are more important. And so as I place the emphasis on relationship, and that's the key. It's seeing relationship for what it really is that drives an environment of significance. Because in that place, we actually 
are saying, you are important to me. I care about you. And I'm going to help you to be as successful as you can be because of this relationship that we have. I read a wonderful book that talked about servant leadership and servant leadership in essence is described as this. It's when you see someone you are mentoring become greater than you. And that's the beauty of being a mentor. And that's the beauty of living a life of significance. So I have this relationship with my grandkids, my grandsons in particular, Jude and Asher. I want to pour into them so that one day they will be at a level beyond what their grandpa ever dreamed of being. And the reason why is because I poured enough into them to move them past what I've been able to accomplish in life. That is a life of significance. And that takes an effort that you need to intent, be intentional about, about pouring into that person's life. Man, if we saw each other from that perspective, Larry, there'd be no issues with division. There would be nothing but being unified because yeah. people would, there would be so much respect and appreciation for what a servant leader does in relationship to these things. Because what they're saying is, what's most important to me is giving everything I have to you so that you can be better than I am. Yeah, it's so interesting. And I, I look back now at, at the work we've done at Good Tidings almost 30 years, and I look at the athletes we partner with, and they are kind athletes. A lot of people think athletes are so competitive and they're always mm. just game face and they're just they can't control themselves. They're almost nasty off the field. But I look at Buster Posey and Steph Curry and Kerry Walsh Jennings and CeCe Sabathia. Some of these people we've worked with, they're so nice and kind. They can be competitive. Oh, sure. Don't get me wrong. But it's interesting. And they're just the perfect example of bringing a team together, or a group together, because I think their persona is just as much as important to the team success as their God-given talent. Would you agree? Oh, I would agree wholeheartedly. I think, aren't those the people that we're endeared to? I mean, when you yeah. think about it for a moment, I mean, the people that I'm drawn to are the people that I, where I see kindness and, it, and they, they just exude kindness. And it's the way in which they listen to someone. It's the way in which they make eye contact with someone. It's the way in which they actually engage and try and help the way they express their care for them. I mean, those are all beautiful things. You know, one of the things that I have embraced when we talk about faith is this question, as a Christian, who am I? That's a really big deal for me. And, and as I live out this life, the thing that I've learned that is so beautiful about my faith is I have the opportunity to express who I really am. And who I am, who I have run into over these years, is someone who is full of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. That's who I am because of who I believe in. Well, those are the things that I should be expressing through my life every day. And in that place... That's to the point that we're talking about, living a life of significance. And in many respects, every one of those words reflects that in my life, I esteem others greater than myself. And I show that by how I love them 
how I express joy, the peace that I bring into her. Isn't it awesome when you're around people who are kind? When I'm with Buster, I feel so much peace in that little space. When we communicate, it's joyful. He expresses love about his family. And I love when we get to talk about that because he understands the people that are most important to him in his life. Those are all really beautiful things that as long as I'm here on this planet, those are the things I want to express as I live out my life. There's very little time. The older I get, hey, you get this. The older we get, the more we realize just how little time is left. I've had someone say to me the other day, I'm in the fourth quarter of life. Well, I don't have much time to be wasting it on being moody and grumpy and mean and angry and cutting and sharp with my words. I don't have time to be wasting my life with that. I want it to be devoted to the love and the joy and the peace and the patience and the kindness and the goodness. That's where I'll be able to experience the best version of myself and the best life that I can live. Yeah, it's wonderful being around people like that, Larry. It really is. Yeah. Well, amen to everything you said. I I, I just want to thank you for joining me today. I, I thank you for I thank you for that comeback in 89. I mean, that was very inspirational. I have a championship ring because of that. And a big part of that is what you did and what you did for the team, the community. Um, people packed candlestick after that. And your perseverance now, your your words you get out and speak, we'll put in the show notes all about endurance.org, what you and your wife are doing. If anyone ever sees on your calendar where you're going to be speaking, they should come hear you because it's words well said. Thank you. I appreciate that very much. And I appreciate so much what you do, bud. It goes a long way in touching the hearts of young kids and it's and it's very special. So keep up the good work. Well, I appreciate that. Let's... Uh, Let's talk about working on a project down in uh, Mesa someday. Uh, That would be awesome. I'd love that. All right. Be well. Okay. Take care. You have just enjoyed an episode of the Good Tidings Podcast, highlighting the goodness in people. To learn more about and to support the Good Tidings Foundation, log on to goodtidings.org. This monthly program is brought to you by the generosity of responseresponsibility.org. Don't miss out on the Good Tidings podcast by reviewing and subscribing to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.